This is On Second Thought from JPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Halloween may be a bonanza for kids, but a Harris Poll online survey found that millennials are the biggest spenders in the estimated $15 billion Halloween market, shelling out more than twice as much on their costumes as Gen Xers and eight times more than boomers. Horror mania is climbing at the box office and the on-demand market as well. Though platforms and special effects change, you can still count on one thing. Screams. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, and Scream for your life! We collected those shrieks from Fay Ray in Hong Kong, Meryl Streep in Big Little Lies, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, Janet Lee in Psycho, and producer Amelia Brock expressing primal fear in the GPB studio. Why do we scream? How does it serve us and other species as we've evolved? Those are some of the questions guiding psychologist Harold Gazoulis and students in Emory's bioacoustics lab. Harold's background is in animal behavior, and he looked at basic animal screams before he went on to humans. I asked him how widespread screaming is in animals. Yes, that's right. We, we, our interest in screams began when my wife Sarah and I were postdocs at the Rockefeller University. And a big question at the time was whether or not animals had the capacity to communicate about things in their external worlds. Mm-hmm. Going back to Darwin, the idea was that animals communicated about their emotions, but that was it. But with respect to the evolution of language, the issue of external reference is important. We have the capacity, of course, to communicate about things in our external worlds. And to what extent do animals have that capacity? So oddly enough, we looked at screams in monkeys because screams are used to recruit support in fights. Clearly to us, something was being communicated, something quite specific about the fight and the seriousness of the situation. So it suggested that screams were communicating something very clear to allies in the social group. Now, with respect to how widespread screams are, they are indeed almost universal across species. Birds scream, various species of mammals scream, even those that don't have very elaborate vocal repertoires, like rabbits. If you look at YouTube and search for rabbit screams, you'll probably laugh at the outcome because it sounds so human. And the same is true with goat screams. So these are vocalizations that are conserved evolutionarily. In other words, they haven't changed very much. Even some frogs will scream. And why they are widespread? They probably had their origins with respect to escape from predation. Mm -hmm. Predator has a victim in its jaws and it's doomsday, but... a loud, sudden vocalization that potentially startles that predator. Might gives that drop fi- it from their mouth? Absolutely right. All right, we're going to save people a Google search and hear some screams from Here is a Rabbit. A goat. And finally, a frog. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Oh my goodness, but it is kind of horrifying. I mean, if it, if the effect is to get somebody to <laughs> be startled, it's working on me. Absolutely. They're sudden and loud and piercing. But it also raises the hairs on the back of my neck. I mean, I hear pain. Is, is it a cry for help as well? Well, it comes to be. 
nobody's going to help a frog. A frog isn't going to help another <laughs> frog. And the same is true for rabbits. You know, it's every, every rabbit for himself. But how about herself. a monkey? But a monkey? Monkeys are very social. And they have um, alliances that are mostly kin-based, relative-based. And the acquisition and maintenance of dominance in the social group is dependent upon these alliances and the ability to recruit. So screams have come to serve in a more elaborate way. They, they will indicate when there's a severe threat or when some, somebody from lower in the hierarchy is challenging so they use different screams to communicate. But the interesting thing is that these screams all concern fights. Now, with humans, it gets more interesting. Okay, because, let's hear. Well, with humans, as you, everybody knows, but probably hasn't thought about it too much, but we scream not only for pain and fear, but in aggression and ex- in excitement. Mm-hmm. And some people have startle screams. You see a cockroach, or you see a mouse, and... A scream will come out. So we use screams in a more in a wider range of situations, contexts, and emotional states, which makes it really interesting. It's kind of like laughter, where some non-humans will laugh too. You tickle a chimpanzee, and it'll give its version of a laugh. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 oh. But that's all they do in terms of laughter. And we, we humans, have laughter that is fake or derisive, or so we are able to use nonverbal communication in more elaborate ways than animals do. And I think that has to do with language. Our language, the fact that we have language, gives us the ability to, to use non-linguistic vocalizations in a more elaborate way than animals are capable than of. Than just the one scream. Exactly. I'm speaking with Emory psychologist Harold Gazoulas. His research at the Bioacoustics Lab uncovers the intricacies of the human scream, and we brought him here <laughs> to scream it from the rooftops. Well, let's do that. Let's put my ears to the scream test, and you can you can play along at home. Uh, so what are we trying to identify here? We're going to hear a couple different screams and see what kind of screams they are? Sounds, sounds good to okay. me. Okay, <laughs> you're going to go with that. Here's the first one. Okay, what do you think? Terror, fear, oh my, something something startled, it sounds like to me? Not quite. Okay, what? That, that's excitement. Oh, really? <laughs> that's actually a, about an 11-year-old girl opening a present, and it's so exciting. And yes, she is so full of excitement that that's what comes out of her mouth. Okay, well, clearly I don't belong in your bioacoustics lab yet. Let's hear, hear the next one. Okay, how about that? Uh, that that definitely sounds scared, like absolutely terrified, a, intense fear. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, next. <laughs> <laughs> it's not joy. No, as a matter of fact, it's not even a scream. Although it mimics a scream in terms of some of the acoustical features. That's what? just that's a whistle. Well, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we we threw in some non-scream sounds to present to our participants in our in our studies just to see exactly how they map this concept of scream and again certain sounds can mimic a scream so that that whistle is high pitched it's about the same duration as a scream it's got the same kind of um, pitch changes and so most people think oh that's a scream they probably think it's a child 
because it's so high pitched. I wanted to ask you. I mean, children. You see, we've all witnessed children having a fit, right? I would assume that that scream is because it's a lack of language, a lack of ability to communicate what's wrong with them. Is that correct? Well, they scream not only when there's something wrong with them, but, very but happy, just for ecstatic. the joy mm-hmm. of screaming. I mean, my my speculation is that even ancestral children in our evolutionary past screamed in this way. And it's a way to get a parent familiar with the scream of their own children. Uh-huh. So they so, could they could pick it out in a crowd if they heard their own kids screaming. That's my suspicion, yes. Well, well, tell me more about that, because that's part of your research. It's not just the nature of the scream, but who is actually screaming and the identification. So how how is that revealing something about the way that we communicate with each other or react to each other in a social way? Well, screams are important. They get attention. No matter what the context, mm-hmm. screams are attention-getting. And another fascinating area, think about in my day when I was a teenager, the Beatles mm-hmm. arrive. Yes. And Ed's, Ed's, yes, the, the screaming scream. girls. Right. And before that, it was um, Elvis Presley, I guess, and Frank Sinatra before that. And then more recently, somebody like One Direction, I don't know who the current boy band is, but I'm sure it's generating all kinds of screams at at concerts. And yet, if you look at somebody like Katy Perry, you know, talented, attractive, but the boys and the young men, they're not screaming in that same way. Uh So there's some gender differences that are really interesting as well. Well, I wondered about that. Is that learned behavior or instinctive behavior? You know, like why? I mean, I have been that person who sees a mouse and maybe not blood-curdling scream, but definitely expresses surprise. I know. I know. Um, Pure speculation, that's that's a tough thing to try to figure out. And we haven't done the cross-cultural comparisons that would be necessary. My suspicion is that these are indeed innate human capacities and differences. But that's that's pure speculation at this point. But why are we, you know, why do we go see horror films? Why do we go to the Beatles show and scream? I mean, what kind of release is happening in us? Well, again, it's um, roller coasters and haunted houses, and people pay good money to go get themselves scared to death uh-huh. and scream. There was a study a few years ago where the researchers asked individuals on a roller coaster not to scream, and it was so much less fun. <laughs> it, it, there's an exp- there's a, a release, if you will, yeah. that comes from screaming, and that's probably ancillary. It's probably additional to any kind of function that screams had, but there's that emotional release as well. Now, what does that do? Screaming, if, if you've got that emotional release, maybe it gives you greater flexibility in terms of dealing with the danger. Uh, again, uh-huh. nobody's – these are tough questions to explore. Right, but that could be the adaptive response, right? You know, we, there's not a predator coming to kill us at that moment, but screaming is some way of connecting to something, some other primal emotion. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay, so you've you've studied a lot of screams, and you have people come into your lab – Civilians like me who may not necessarily be good at distinguishing screams. What do you do? Do you play sample screams? We do. We have a library of screams that we've collected <laughs> over the years. And then a lot of them come from the Internet, um, but also TV and movies mm-hmm. and um, screams from different contexts. And so just as I'm sitting here with headphones on, 
the participants will sit down and hear a, 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 a bank of screams, and then they answer questions on a computer screen that gives us information. And they also fill out questionnaires about empathy and emotional processing and their experience with things like video games. Mm -hmm. And so we try to get a sense of what their backgrounds are as well. And do males differ from females in terms of their ability to discriminate one kind of scream from another? And the answer is yes, but then again, females have a slight advantage in terms of emotional processing in general. Mm -hmm. There's literature that indicates that. And perhaps pitch. There's that. <laughs> There's that, yeah. Do you have any favorite screams, you know, Hollywood screams or otherwise? Well, my favorite, and it dates back to when I was just a child, and, and you played it. It's Fay Ray's classic scream. You know, they referred to those actresses as scream queens. Yeah. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I guess, was a more recent And her mother, generation. Janet Lee. Janet Lee, of course. That's right. So, yeah, I, I would have to say if I have to choose one scream, it's that classic Fay Ray on the ship as they're approaching King Kong's Island, and and uh, she's asked to imagine something horrifying, and she belts out that scream, which, again, it's probably my favorite. Let's hear it again for good measure, as we thank you so much, Harold Gazoulis. He's a psychologist and runs Emory's Bioacoustics Lab. Thank you so much for speaking with us. My great pleasure. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, and scream for your life! <laughs> Emory psychologist Harold Gazoulis there sharing his research on screams and putting his ears to our scream test. So what is your favorite most blood-curdling scream? Drew Barrymore in Scream? Shelley Duvall in The Shining? Whoever that lady is in the bathtub at Nightmare in Elm Street? Let us know on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, or give us a shout. Couldn't resist on Twitter at OST Talk. We're going to head into the break with an internet throwback. Taylor Swift, I knew you were trouble with backup vocals from a few screaming goats. Up next, we will visit one of Georgia's most historically haunted places, Savannah. Stay with us if you dare. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Savannah consistently lands on or at the top of lists of America's most haunted cities. On a given night, competing ghost tours tromp across town squares and gather at historic buildings to hear creepy legends of unquiet spirits lurking alongside the living. Well, Christopher Baronado is no ghost hunter, but a Savannah-based writer who researched some of the city's most haunted sites, storied locations, and urban legends. His new book, Secret Savannah, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure unveils facts about the city to guide first-time visitors or long-time residents. Today we're talking with him about some of the eerie and creepy things he's learned and connecting with us from Savannah is Christopher Baronado. Hello. Hi. So this was your opportunity to re-explore Savannah with this book. What do, who did you have in mind when writing the book, locals or tourists? Really both. I mean, uh, because, you know, I consider myself a local now. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm married to a, a local, my wife Courtney, and... Uh, I realized when they asked me to write this book that I'd been taking the city for granted, that there was a lot of things I'd always heard about but never actually went out to explore or check out. 
So I saw this not only as an opportunity to publish a book, which is always a good deal, but uh, to reacquaint myself with my home. So what was your process for uncovering or telling these stories? Obviously, you go and visit the place, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of history behind them. There certainly is. Yeah. Uh, You know, I do research in you know, other guides or look at old Savannah books. In fact, I had borrowed uh, a tour guide from the 1800s from a friend of mine, and I didn't find too much stuff in there, but it was fun to look through that old material. And then certainly websites and then talking to locals and tour guides and getting information about that. And then just using my own, you know, putting my own kind of contextualization and spin on some of these stories. Uh, For example, I had never heard of the Powder Magazine, which is this looks like a stone castle that's just hidden out in the woods that uh, used to store all of Savannah's dynamite. I'd never heard of that before. didn't know it actually existed. So I finally went out to go see it for the first time, and that was very exciting. So how did you verify? Give me an example of a process for research for one of the places that you visited. Let's see. For the Powder Magazine, I definitely go, you know, look at uh, historical records for certain things. You know, for, for some of the older buildings and architecture, the, the historical information is easily you know, easy to dig up. For other things that are a little vaguer, you know, as far as stories that just kind of became local legend, that, you know, I, I do the best. A lot of times it was secondary sources that I'd get that information from, and it would be kind of hard to dig up the primary source from where they got it in the first place, but it still makes it an interesting enough story to include, include into the book. Uh, so all of the legends make it in there, too. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Well, there's an example of the various explanations handed down from generation to generation in the story of the tunnels that run underneath Savannah. First, is that true? Tunnels are running all underneath Savannah? Mostly, no. There are certainly, you know, basements and, you know, long basements that run under things. Probably the one that's most verifiable is uh, the old Chatham Hospital. Uh, Right after, like, shortly after the Yellow Fever had built a... um, uh, a tunnel, a new mortuary uh, underneath uh, Forsyth, uh, underneath Forsyth Park, running from like running underneath uh, Drayton Street, uh, where they would store the bodies rather than in, directly in the building. And that building's not owned by SCAD, but you can still see outside the building the old wooden door that leads to that uh, old morgue underneath. There are some places that, as you say, a guide to the weird, wonderful, and obscure, and the downright bizarre, inexplicable things like Echo Square. This is in Rusaka's Plaza on Savannah's Riverwalk. What is so strange about this spot? You have uh, bricks on the ground that form a black X, and then it has these um, planters around it with pampas grass. And if you stand right in the middle of the X and speak, it creates this weird echo chamber around your head. It's almost like having your head in a box. Uh, and the the strangest thing about it is uh, no one outside of that X can hear that echo. You're the only one who is hearing it. Hmm. Um, and and oddly enough, there's no marker to indicate that it's an echo square or an echo chamber. Uh, most tourists walk past it completely unaware that, you know, there's anything remarkable about it. I've watched the YouTube video of someone actually recording the echo <laughs> inside mm-hmm. of that square. But do, you, do we know? I mean, obviously, there's an X there that was put there for some reason. Anything about whether it was designed to do this? It almost feels like it had to have been. You know, X marks the spot. And, you know, and everyone has different stories about what it is. Some people think it's a supernatural zone of interest. Or, um, you know, you mentioned the tunnels earlier. Some uh, people like to think that maybe there's tunnels right underneath there that create kind of a hollow echo effect when you stand in that spot. Well, the supernatural gets a lot of play in Savannah, ghost stories and paranormal activity. Is there a place in particular that is of most interest for paranormal activity in the city? 
You know, it seems as though almost every single spot in Savannah is haunted. <laughs> I, in fact, I didn't set out to write about ghost stories when I wrote this book. I mean, this book contains the world's largest boiled peanut or, you know, a petting zoo, things like that. But when you write about Savannah, the ghosts just seem to find themselves lurking in the margins of your text, and you just can't help it. It would be like writing a book about Washington, D.C. and not mentioning politics. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, the, probably the most haunted space in Savannah uh, is Moon River Brewing Company. That's certainly the most infamous. Uh, two different ghost hunter shows had been filmed there. So what supposedly happened at the Moon River Brewing Company? Well, the Moon River Brewing Company used to be the city hotel. It was built in 1821. Probably the most uh, infamous story about Moon River is in 1832, a local miscreant named James Stark had uh, developed a feud with a local doctor, a respected doctor. And he had said a lot of nasty things about him, you know, in the company of other people at the city hotel. So the doctor came and shot him and killed him. And fortunately for the doctor, because he was well-respected and no one liked James Stark, he was acquitted and was able to continue practicing medicine. That's the only verifiable murder that's happened that I've been able to dig up. But it, there's certainly a lot of other ghosts that seem to be haunting that place that are unrelated to James Stark. So I take it you, from the skeptical view that you take in researching some of these places, are not a believer in the paranormal. I'm not a believer in ghosts, but I do believe in strange, uncanny spaces. Mm. Like, it's the places that usually give me an uneasy feeling, not so much the idea that there's a presence or a person there. It's almost like the architecture itself is enough to uh, give me an uneasy feeling. But you've never acquainted yourself with any ghosts. Well, my only ghost experience, and this, you know, everyone has at least one ghost story that they just cannot explain about, you know, some, something that happened in their childhood or, th or their life. And this one was relatively recent. My mother-in-law is definitely a firm believer in ghosts uh, and uh, she claimed to have a ghost in her house and would tell me all kinds of story about how the, the there was a little boy and the mischief he get into in the in the house and I didn't believe it ever until my own son who was a toddler at the time was playing in what we called the flamingo room it's the guest bedroom all decked out in flamingos and he was playing there for a while and then he came out with this pale look on his face totally terrified look there's nothing in there that can scare you. Like I said, it's flamingos. But he saw something in there that absolutely mortified him, and I was never able to get out of him what it was that he saw. Ooh. And that was about as close to a ghost as I've ever gotten. Ooh, that is so creepy. I, You know, I've actually been on some of those ghost tours in Savannah, and no knock on the people who are doing them, but they show you these, you know, some of them carry these um, big iPads that show pictures that show, you know, shadowy spirits or something levitating. And I just think... Well, you know, it's pretty easy to mess with a photograph, isn't it? What, what do you, why do you think there's such a brisk trade in ghostliness there in Savannah? What is it in particular about that place? Oh, it's absolutely the atmosphere and the history, you know, with the yellow fever and the fire in the 1800s. A lot of tragedies and deaths that, you know, make great fuel for ghost stories. Uh, for example, the Colonial Cemetery... In, in the, right in the center of a town looks like the platonic ideal of a, of, of a spooky cemetery. It has about 12,000 bodies buried in it, but only 700 gravestones. Uh, and the most interesting thing about it is there is a historical marker there about uh, a mass grave for nearly 700 yellow fever victims that died in 1820. Mm. But the funny thing about the nearly 700 is, uh, according to the official records, uh, it was 666 
uh, victims of the yellow fever. But the marker says nearly 700 because, as we all know, 666 has kind of uh, a malevolent, satanic connotation to it. So they did not want to put that on the marker. No, I mean, you know, ghosts are good for tourism, but, you know, there's certainly a limit. <laughs> are there any creepy or obscure places that are legendary that you didn't put in the book because you couldn't verify what their sources or the story behind them was? Oh, yeah. My favorite ghost story, even though I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, this one is just so interesting to me and so touching. Uh, in fact, when I first told the story to my wife, her eyes kind of welled up with tears. So a fair warning to your listeners. But uh, the firehouse downtown, which happens to be close to the Colonial Cemetery, uh, the firefighters there claim to have seen a small boy at night go down the, the, the fire pole. Ooh. And, uh, you know, I, I, the story could end right there, but one of the firemen had spoken to uh, their neighbor, this white house that next door they had been built in 1819, uh, a kind of a historical home. And she said that she'd heard children running around in her house that night, just to pitter-patter feet up and down stairs and on the floors. And she didn't, and it made it difficult for her to sleep, and she didn't know what to do about it. So they came up with the idea of perhaps putting them to bed. So every night before she goes to sleep, she'd go to each room, stick her head in, and say, Nighty-night, sleep tight, time to go to bed. Oh, my god. And after that routine, uh, she wouldn't hear peep. It would be completely silent, and she could sleep. And so the guy who told me this story, uh, he was so intrigued by it that he decided to do a little research, and he found that at one point that building had been used as an orphanage. Oh, my goodness. Let me ask you, Chris, were there any famous myths debunked during your research? Well, not so much debunked, but uh, there's, tourists are definitely interested in Forrest Gump. They love that movie, and they want to see the bench. And because I work at the Gallery Espresso on Chippewa Square, where Forrest Gump was shot, I get asked at least a dozen times, where is the bench? Where is the bench? We can't find it. And I always have to break their hearts and disappoint them and tell them that the bench was a movie prop. It's not actually there. And, uh, you know, they look a little dejected, but I tell them where they can stand and at least take a picture in the spot where it once was. You'd think they just put a darn bench there for the tourist benefit. Oh, can you imagine the queue of people lined up in the middle of the street to take that picture? Yeah, it would be it would be great for the chocolate business that's next door to us. They would probably sell a lot of chocolate just for photo ops. Not even the ghost of a Forrest Gump bench. <laughs> I feel I, frankly I feel haunted by Forrest Gump personally because of this bench story. <laughs> I suppose that and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil have their long trail there in Savannah. Mm -hmm. Christopher Baronado, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Savannah author Christopher Baronado, he just went over some of Savannah's most scary facts and locations, along with some that aren't so scary. You can learn more from his new book, Secret Savannah, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. And Chris is going to be at the Book Lady Shop in Savannah to talk about his book tomorrow. That's November 1st. Details on the event at our website, gbbnews.org. And as we head into the break, we're going to listen to Neon Frankenstein by the Marshmallow Ghosts. Their new album, The Old Witch's Cavern, was released by Graveface Records in Savannah. Coming up, an Atlanta historic home invites us to explore the mind of Edgar Allan Poe, the godfather of horror. I'm Virginia Prescott. We've got more dark tales coming your way. Stay with us. It's Dr. Frankenstein. And he's working on a new... This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. 
For Halloween, GPB host Ricky Bevington turns from news stories to ghost stories. She and producer Sophia Salaby have unearthed haunting tales of Georgia's most memorable spirits. They started in the southwest Georgia town of Americus. There, the spirits of a little girl and her mother are said to haunt the halls of the Windsor Hotel. The brand new Windsor Hotel in 1892 is the height of luxury for celebrities and politicians escaping cold northern winters. The red brick Victorian building features towers, balconies, elevators, and a three-story atrium lobby. It is the only hotel in Georgia offering guests individualized silverware. Legend has it that one day in the early 1900s, a housekeeper named Emily May was arguing with her lover in the hotel's third floor hallway. As the couple's exchange grew heated, her young daughter Emma stood by helplessly, holding her mother's hand. In a fit of rage, Emily May's lover pushed her furiously into a nearby elevator. What he may not have realized, the elevator shaft was empty. Mother and daughter, still hand in hand, fell three stories to their deaths. Since that tragic day at the Windsor Hotel, guests and employees report feeling the presence of a little girl. Some hear a child's footsteps running down a third-floor hallway. Guests also confess to seeing the fleeting reflection of a woman in a long black dress in a third-floor mirror. Pots and pans fly off tables and counters. Lights and radios mysteriously turn on and off. Today, the Windsor Hotel embraces its spooky history with ghost tours to introduce guests to Emily May and Emma. If you go to the Windsor, you can also look for the spirit of a former doorman wandering the building, still welcoming guests to their stay. This next ghost story comes from Roswell, where a love story ended in tragedy at the height of the Civil War. In 1864, times were tough in Roswell, occupied by federal troops under Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. Food and clothes were expensive and hard to come by. One of the only places to get what you needed was the commissary, the general store. A teenager named Catherine worked for her father, who owned the commissary. One day, a young Union soldier named Michael walked in to pick up a few things. He spotted Catherine, and it was love at first sight. An affair between a northerner and southerner was scandalous. Their relationship was short. Michael was charged with treason and was hanged in the Roswell Town Square. It is said Catherine witnessed the execution from the upstairs window of the commissary. Her heart broke. A few days later, Catherine was found dead, hanging from the large beams of the upstairs floor of the commissary. In recent years, the commissary has been home to several failed restaurants, and according to reports, the spirits of the couple still linger. 
Employees said the grand piano sometimes played by itself. In the morning, they would come upstairs to see chairs move to clear a space in the center of the room. And people swear they've seen ghostly figures in the upstairs windows of the commissary dancing in each other's arms. So it seems Catherine and Michael have been reunited in the afterlife. Dead last is this tale from Lawrenceville. There, the ghost of a man wrongfully put to death is said to still be heard singing to the love he left behind. What we know of this story comes from Judge Richard D. Wynn, who confessed to his part in the tragedy some 40 years earlier. Wynn's 1883 article in the Gwinnett Herald begins by describing Colonel James Austin as a drunk One night in 1848, Austin burst into his kitchen to find a married slave couple working, Alec and Betsy. Austin grabbed Betsy. Alec fought back, tearing Austin off his wife. Enraged, Austin chased his slave while wildly swinging a sword. Alec scrambled into a cabin loft. Cornered and fearing for his life, Alec fatally stabbed his master nine times in self-defense. As Austin lay dead before him, Alec chose not to run. He went straight to the courthouse to explain the unfortunate death of Colonel James Austin. Instead of being rewarded for his honesty, Judge Wynne sentenced Alec to hang. Writing almost four decades later, Wynne questions whether Alec's punishment fit his crime, asking, quote, if it had been a free man, would it not have been classed as justifiable homicide? Today, tour guides bring visitors into the historic Lawrenceville jail. They point to indentations in the back of one cell where Alec may have tried to carve his way to freedom. There are reports of unexplained orbs of light, missing audio recordings of tours, and a feeling of deep sorrow when you lean on the walls of the cell. Often, when tour guides sing the same mournful song Alec sang for his wife from jail, they hear a voice singing with them, echoing back the last words of each phrase. Betsy, will you meet me? Betsy, will you meet me? Betsy, will you meet me? In heaven above. Happy Halloween. All Things Considered host Ricky Bevington there. She and producer Sophia Salaby learned of ghost tales from Americus, Lawrenceville, and Roswell.
For a short time, Edgar Allan Poe is haunting the halls of a fabled Atlanta home. The Edgar Allan Poe experience at the Wren's Nest is an immersive theatrical production evoking the final days of Poe's life, when he's said to have wandered the streets in a haggard state, crying out the name of a man no one could identify. I went to see the Choose Your Own Adventure style production last weekend and stepped into scenarios inspired by The Raven, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Telltale Heart and the Mask of the Red Death. A crowd assembled on the porch at the Arts and Crafts era home turned House of Bedlam for the night. Actor Robert Lee Heinzman as the doctor called us to order, and he wasn't playing. Welcome to the newest patients of the Rins Nest Asylum. You're late! Actor Michael Fortino is again playing Edgar Allan Poe in this production, and he's with me in the studio today. Michael, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, so the show is Brian Cloudus is the guy who he's kind of came up with this whole thing, an right. Atlanta-based producer and director who creates immersive theater experiences. So they go beyond a scripted story. But if somebody doesn't know immersive theater, how would you describe it? Well, uh, I would say it's completely eliminating the fourth wall. Uh, you are going through the experience with us rather than sitting in a house. So you walk around with me throughout the story, and uh, you kind of lose your mind in it. It's really a lot of fun. You just kind of lose yourself in the stories, and then you start to question what's real, what's not real, and it's just a lot of fun. I think our guests would really enjoy it. Well, I certainly did, and people who were there certainly did. But so uh, he also, Brian said that he first was inspired to do this by the physical space at the Wren's Nest. So this is one of, I think it's the oldest historical house museum in the country. But can you tell us a little bit about that place? Right. Uh, so it was uh, it was originally owned by Joel Chandler Harris. Now it's been turned, as you said, to historical home museum. And um, let me tell you, it is really, really uh, helpful in the immersive experience just because uh, as soon as you walk in the house, I remember walking in the house for the first time, uh, to watch, to study the show, and right off the bat, with the you know the the fog, the the darkness uh, outside, and the trees and everything, it's just really, really creepy. And then uh, once you're guided inside, I mean, it's just the creaky floors and the the doors that just just so loud when they slam. It's just it really does add that uh, little bit of detail to help bring us all together. Yes, sure. and and a little sense of horror, you know, Absolutely. it looks like a perfect haunted house. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of us do not like to uh, stay there alone. <laughs> so really? Is we, that we, so? do the, we do the buddy system. Uh, we've all had a, a couple of experiences where we're like, nope, I gotta go. Uh, no kidding. I was, uh, so in the house, uh, Joel Chandler Harris actually passed away in the house. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And by the way, I should note for people, he is the one who wrote the Uncle Remus tale. Correct. So he grew up on a plantation and apparently spent a lot of time listening to the African-American folk tales. Absolutely. Um, he died in the home. He died in the home, in the room where you can follow, well, you can't follow Poe into this room, but where his room is between sessions. Uh, that's the actual room. So that's where I get to go by myself between shows. And uh, there was one night after the show, I was picking up my costume and just kind of blowing the candles out. And uh, I heard a thump, thump on the door in front of me. And I just grabbed my stuff and I said, nope. And I ran out of there and I ran upstairs with my castmates. And I was just like, uh, no, thank you. Okay. No, no. So you just got to make sure we have good vibes going in, you know, light the candles, <laughs> say, you know, play some music, you know, it'll be fun. 
Okay, so in this show, everybody gathers inside of this hallway, and there are doors leading into different rooms, and everybody can choose them. You play Poe in the show, and he is kind of wandering in and out in an increasingly, I would say, distressed state. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we uh, so we go story to story, room to room. Um, we repeat it actually two or three times, depending on the size of the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I love repeating it because, yeah, it does kind of play into that insanity. It's like, wait, haven't I been here before? I've Wait, I know this place. And then the more it goes, the more it goes, the crazier and crazier Poe gets. And he has that trouble defining the line between his own stories and reality. And I just I love that concept. So I imagine for you as an actor, it's, you know, we have this picture, especially framed in this kind of you know, goth era idea of of what insanity looks like, and it's very histrionic. Mm-hmm. But you're you're not screaming, you know. That, so how do you how to communicate that descent of the mind? You know, little things, subtle things, um, gestures, hand gestures. You know, I did a little bit of. Uh, I wanted to understand, you know, towards the end of his life, what was going on, like what mental illness he was suffering from specifically, you know, and it was more bipolar disorder and he was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He was very, very, um, he was drinking a lot towards the end of his life. Right. And, uh, and so I wanted to pick up on things, you know, uh, subtle gestures, hand gestures, you know, is he hot? He hasn't drank. He's in this asylum now. Now he's yeah. been drinking. So now how are the f- physical effects going? And then, you know, hair. I, I really wanted to um, say authentic. Emmy, who is the uh, costume and makeup designer for the show, we talked about what we wanted this version of Poe to look like. Because I was like, you know, let's shave everything off, go classic mustache, uh, classic hairstyle. And we just thought that wasn't really appropriate because, you know, again, these are the last days of his life. And he is losing it. He's been in an insane asylum for a little bit. Days before his death, they found him uh, on a bench. And then uh, days later, he, he passed away. So we left him very scruffy, mustache kind of not so perfect, and then just the hair wherever it fell that night. <laughs> Michael Fortino is with us. He's an actor, and he's playing Poe in the Edgar Allan Poe Experience, which is an immersive theater production that the Wren's Nest in Atlanta through November the 3rd. Here is a little bit more sound from the various different Poe stories being acted out at the Wren's Nest. <laughs> interesting because these are not literal interpretations of the books. You know, you're not watching a scene play out of of something that happened in one of the Poe stories, but it's kind of an embodiment or letting people into those stories. And I will add that Imani Joseph plays the Raven. Yes. Megan Poole plays Madeline Usher. So this is the fall of the House of Usher. And I already mentioned uh, Robert Heinzman, who plays the Doctor, for the Telltale Heart. We also spoke to Austin Davis, who plays the Mask of the Red Death. Let's just hear a little bit about how he draws people in. 
I used to work at uh, theme parks and do sort of a similar thing where you're improving with people as a character, but it's all very positive and very, you know, make sure you have a good time. But this is sort of a little bit the opposite where it's like, oh, you know, maybe it is good to feel uncomfortable or good to be called out. So it's a, it's a lot of freedom, a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of freedom, honestly. So when someone's sort of acting up, cutting a joke, trying to make, make light of the situation, you can hone in on them and say, well, what, what's funny? And then all of a sudden, you know, so you wouldn't get that at a normal theater experience. So it's wonderful. Yeah, so you're kind of putting people on the spot. Absolutely. That's the best way to put it. I mean, we're just really... Um, what's cool is there is a script. There is a script. Right. And uh, in long-form improv, uh, most cases they have like a beginning and end how we get there is our choice yeah. and yeah as austin said it, we are we're able to really interact with the audience better that way so because we feel like we kind of have control of the show and like we have backup plans of like hey we got too many people in this room so mm -hmm. we need to do uh imani plays the raven uh we we need to change this move up we need to instead of you jumping on my shoulders maybe this time you just jump straight up and i'll catch you because we got you know 40 people in this room so we've got to be very careful and safe so how about the energy of the audience? How do they feed off of the, How do they roll with it? <laughs> so at first, I thought their laughter was that they were making fun of us. <laughs> She's laughing! And then I realized, oh, no, no, no. This is nervous laughter. Yeah, it's kind of because, a level of discomfort. Absolutely, it? absolutely. At first, I was a little offended. I was like, "Hey, you know, we're acting here. Excuse me." Uh, but then I was like, "Oh no, they're they're very uncomfortable." And I'm like, "Then we're doing this right. This is right." So, is that the goal to make people feel a kind of off kilter? And how do you bring them back to you then? Yeah. So, my personal goal is just to confuse them. Uh, I want them asking questions. If if they're after the show, if they say they enjoyed it, that's I mean, obviously that's wonderful. But also if they have their own interpretation of it is which what's interesting. We have disagreements in the cast and crew about um, what the story is about. My interpretation of it is that these are literally like literally the days before, and as soon as he walks out of that asylum, they find him on the bench, and Aww, but yeah, they had found. <laughs> I get a lot of that during the show too. Oh, poor Edgar! It's sad. <laughs> it is, it is really tremendously sad. sad. I mean, to see this man who's—you I mean, know—you're acting as this man who was such a great brain, so diminished um, and and so haunted. Right. You know that kind of look of being haunted. So this theatrical—you you grew up in Augusta, correct? Right, Augusta, Georgia. Did you go to school for acting? I did. Yeah. I did. I, I studied. Uh, I studied acting at Augusta University. Yeah, it was a great time there. But how different is it performing in these kind of immersive theatrical productions from the other work you do? So I've had that same question when asked about difference between stage and film, and I would say stage gives you that instant gratification, but actually immersive experiences really give you instant like feedback because they're right there yeah it's like an audience you have the space you have the fourth wall you have uh some distance but with these we've had some weird situations with guests will come up and like hold my hand and like tell me it's okay or they want to recite their favorite uh poe poem to me you know uh, annabelle lee is a is a favorite f amongst our guests they'll come up and they'll be like I want to recite this poem for you. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. I appreciate it. Do people attending this event have to read or understand Edgar Allan Poe's work in order to uh, get it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you could still get a really good story out of it. Uh, if you don't read Poe, then I think what you'll get out of it is just a, a descent into madness. 
uh, and I think you enjoy it anyway. So we all have this capacity to, you know, feel unglued in our lives. What is it like to give kind of full reign to that as as an actor and let yourself completely become deranged? It's it's pretty great. It's really freeing, and you know, and you feel safe. You're in a safe place to just be free and just to let go. And uh, I like to play music right before I go on, and uh, and just to, like I said before, I, I the cast goes down and they you know welcome the guests, and I'm the only one that stays by myself. And when they go downstairs, I turn the lights off and I play some music to help me just like really get into it. And I don't know if you've seen The Joker recently. I, I have not seen it because I'm too scared. Oh, so that I saw, <laughs> I, I've seen it twice so far. So in the in the scene, this is, uh, I don't want to give any spoilers away, mm-hmm. but um, um, something traumatic had, has just happened, something very significant to the character. And Joaquin Phoenix runs into the bathroom of a of a subway station he locks it and he's just realized what he's done and who he's become and this cello piece starts playing and then he just starts dancing he just starts becoming the character so he just starts slowly dancing it's like music and dancing is a huge part of the story uh but i watched an interview with todd phillips and he said that the director the director of the film yes that he and joaquin phoenix who plays joker were in the bathroom together alone and they said the composer had just written this piece and they just started playing it and he just started dancing he just started to embody the character just like that and uh it turned out to be one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole movie. But yeah, that, that that piece of music really just gives me goosebumps just listening to it. So I was like, yeah, I want to make this a part of my, uh, my ritual when I get going. How do you come back from it? My cast. Mm. Honestly, it's, uh, you know, they're some of the nicest, hardworking people uh, I've ever worked with and you know you you finish the show I walk out to the back porch and I stand alone I'm just like and then when they come out there and they're just so nice uh, just the most supportive and nicest people just like oh yeah yeah wait this is acting right <laughs> well Michael Fortino welcome back <laughs> from from your descent thank you Michael Fortino plays Poe in the Edgar Allan Poe Experience. You can catch the show at the Wren's Nest at 8 and 10 p.m. from now until November the 3rd. Information at gpvnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer, who is celebrating her birthday today. So happy birthday to you, Amy. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. We're going to leave you with Narls Barkley's The Boogie Monster. And would love to know what's on your Halloween playlist. We're on Twitter at OST Talk or at our Facebook group, GPB's On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, wishing you a happy, safe, and spooky as heck Halloween. 